I'd like to open a brief word of prayer. It's how I love to do my keynotes, sermons, whatever I do when I teach. So just rest with me in a moment. And I say, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Amen. I've given a variation of a talk on the marks of a Christian writer for many years, and I have now retired that talk. And I thought, you know, it was good, it had merit, but I started from scratch and I'm debuting it here tonight with you. Because the more I think about each of you, each of us in the publishing industry, there are various things that set us apart from any other artist, any other profession. The Christian writer, well, first we have to define Christian. So let's make sure we all have that. I'm going to give you my definition, simply defined as a follower of Jesus Christ. Kind of simple. Allows for all sorts of variations underneath that, that moniker. But I have six fairly quick things that I can talk to you about, and I'm going to go through them fairly rapidly, and we'll kind of unpack them a little bit in a minute. But the first, in my opinion, the Christian writer, they are people of the word. People of words need to be people of the word. Nothing else. It's what separates us in all conversation with those who are not people of the word. If they don't accept the word of the, the Bible as the word of God, you kind of have a difficult time having a conversation because already you're at separation from their understanding. But my question for you is, do you incarnate the word as word weavers, word writers? Do you make it a part of the fabric of your existence in all speech, every word, and every deed? When you're in a crisis situation or even something that might be um, uh, enjoyable, do the quotations that come to your mind, are they Led Zeppelin lyrics? Or are they the Psalms? How much has the word become a part of who you are that when the devil takes you into the wilderness for 40 days and tempts you in every word and manner, do you quote scripture back at him? Or do you wilt and say, I don't know what to say? The Christian writer, writers, Christian writers are people of truth. Truth with a capital T. I hope you're writing these down because you will be referencing them in a minute. So we have people of the word, people of truth. And this is a capital T that does not need to be fact-checked. You know, I just read this a couple weeks ago. It just floored me that there was a young African-American pastor 
teaching at a secular university by invitation doing a lecture on uh, racial equality and racial tension in our, in our culture. And someone from the audience asked him, so what is the one book we need to read to understand and combat racism? He answered, the Bible, and was booed off the stage. The truth is not welcome, but we must be people of the truth, because if it isn't us, who will it be? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Revelation 3, verse 7, in speaking of Christ, declares that he that is true. 3 John 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. But Pilate asked, and I often will ask, so what is truth? <laughs> I mean, seriously. Just try to write that down, write that definition down without looking up in a dictionary. Um, so I kind of rambled in my notes, and this is what I came up with, and see if you agree. God is holy. God is righteous. God is perfect. All his ways are right. His mercy endures forever. Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. We are kept forever by his love. The Holy Spirit has sealed us. The Lord Jesus died and rose again, and he now intercedes for us in heaven. If we believe these truths, then all things work together for good. People of truth. We are, as Christian writers, should also be people of peace. In a time of rancor, are you part of the problem or part of the solution? Is there any delight in division? Is there any delight in scoring points in an online debate? And I'm not saying you don't engage. I mean, when error is in evidence, that error often should be pointed out or countered. But I think of the word winsome. It's an interesting word. One writer actually said, winsomeness is not a set of activities, but it's a posture. I like that. It's a posture, not scrunched over and afraid, not jutting chin, fists out, pumping the chest. It's a confident but engaging welcome. Let's talk. people of peace, people who practice it and seek it. Christian writers 
are people of righteousness. Are you pure in heart? Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness for his name's sake? The idea of being made right with God. It's an inner pursuit to be sure, but it's also an outward one to pursue what is right and noble and God-honoring. We are people of renewal, the Christian writer. Are you working out your salvation with fear and trembling? Because we are broken vessels. We're shattered beyond recognition. But Christ picks up those pieces and he recasts, renews these receptacles of God's grace. There is no way that we should be able to hold God's grace inside this receptacle because we are broken. God, in his mercy, has renewed us and refashioned us into a receptacle. You know, one way to think about this, it's uh, Romans 12, 1 and 2, to do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, and that's actually the Greek word for transfigured. There's only two other places in the New Testament where that word is used, and one of it is when Jesus is transfigured on the mount. Same word here. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transfigured, be transformed by the renewing of the mind. And as the NIV put it, for this is your spiritual act of worship. We are also people of faith. We should be. The Christian writer should be, we we should be people of faith. Faith, not the currency that you put enough coins into the God machine and the soda that you want comes out. That isn't what this means. How many times people say, you don't have enough faith. Well, how much is enough? What does that mean? I mean, when you think about faith, it was one of the five solas of the Reformation, sola fide, by faith alone. Not of works, lest any man should boast. When the world says, you are foolish to believe, to have faith, how do you respond to that? You're a fool. You're deluded. I actually picked this out of a blog post three weeks ago by a Christian writer who said, quote, we need more than the Bible, more than the gospel, more than Jesus. My jaw hit the floor. I went, 
what do you mean? There's nothing else but. How can you say it's not enough? Well, let me put it this way. I'll shape it in a different, uh, in a different form. We, and I guess you would agree with this, are in a massive spiritual battle against what? Principalities and powers. At every turn, the truth with a capital T is being assailed. And if you think pol politics is a fight, pull back the curtain of this space and look into the supernatural world where the war is raging. Our speaker last night wrote a novel about it 36 years ago. Here's a quote from a book by Joseph Butler. It's come to be taken for granted that Christianity is no longer the subject of, of honest inquiry. It, but now it, it is at length discovered to be fictitious. Accordingly, it is treated as if in the present age that this were an agreed point among all people of discernment and nothing remains but to set Christianity up as the principal subject for mirth and ridicule. Does it sound like yesterday's news? Does it sound like the world is saying that to you boldly? putting you on defensive? From the very beginning, the enemy has been at enmity with God. John 44, 844, when Satan lies, he speaks his native language. For he is a liar and the father of lies. He uses lies to confuse and to have us exchange what is holy for what is easy. The Hebrew and Greek words that describe the activity, the actions of Satan include these English translations. Illusion, deception, to deceive, to be deluded, to make a fool of, deceitfulness, delusion, empty, worthlessness. Oh, that quote I gave you from Joseph Butler saying that Christianity is no longer a subject and should be a subject of mirth and uh, ridicule was written in 1736. And here's where I'm headed. In 1736, when Christianity was literally on the ropes God began a remarkable work of revival in New England under the ministry of Jonathan Edwards and in Great Britain under the ministry of John and Charles Wesley and George Whitfield. The Great Awakening happened at a time when Christianity was under ridicule. <laughs> Guess what? They were writers. Could you be part 
of the message that counters what the world is shouting and screaming from the streets? Well, let's look at those six marks again. Let's go back through them very quickly. We have the word, people of the word, people of truth, people of peace, people of righteousness, people of renewal, and people of faith. But I want to do something here for you. I want to rearrange them a little bit. Because every one of those is found in Ephesians chapter 6. The belt of truth. The breastplate of righteousness. The shoes of peace. The shield of faith. The helmet of salvation. And the sword of the spirit. Christian writers should carry these marks and wear them. You see, you're a warrior. You might not like the metaphor. You might like the the military metaphor, but I didn't make this up. This is scriptural. We are in a battle. I mean, I find it almost kind of sad that we don't sing onward Christian soldiers in church anymore. We're marching as to war. Lift high his royal banner. Or how about this one? Stand up, stand up for Jesus. Ye soldiers of the cross, lift high his royal banner. He must not suffer loss from victory unto victory. His army shall he lead till every foe is vanquished. And Christ is Lord indeed. When I look at the armor of God, I have to remember that it is shaped exactly for my body. This isn't a case of Saul handing the little boy David this massive armor and then laughing at him when it didn't fit. You've gone to a special fitting room, and it's made just for you, but we all wear the same pieces. Let's look at them. The belt of truth. It's the first thing that's put on because it's the foundation upon which every other piece of army sits. If your belt doesn't sit right, it's just going to get all wonky. If you don't understand the truth, then hunger and thirst for it. Pursue it. Figure it out. You know, it holds the core. They say when, you know, you're going to be athletic or you're going to do something, you have to tense those muscles and have that core because that creates the foundation. Here's another thing about the belt of truth that just fascinates me. It circles your entire body. So that means no matter what direction you are looking at it, it's the same thing. The truth is the same no matter what direction it is viewed. John 8, 31 and 32, Jesus said, If you continue in my word and are my disciples, you will know the truth, 
and the shall set you free. Do you believe it? The belt of truth. The breastplate of righteousness. <laughs> you know, we see the TV shows and the movies and other things that, you know, we see that armor. We can almost, you can almost picture it. You know, the sleeveless thing that kind of hooks over the shoulders and is usually or somewhat ornate. But what is it protecting? The heart. That part that if that is injured, you're going to have a tough time taking another step. But I looked this up. I tried to find the belt, or sorry, the breastplate of righteousness is only here. It's not here. If you run away from the battle, you will be crushed. But when you turn into the battle, you have God's protection over your heart, your body, your gut. You will be protected. And that breastplate is righteousness. Being made right with God when all things are unright, he makes you right and justified in his eyes. The shoes of peace. <laughs> A couple little things and observations here. The one thing about shoes is they go with you wherever you go. You can't run out of your shoes, well, you can probably try, but if you ever go into battle with flip-flops, you're probably not going to have a good time. And the kind of boots that these Roman soldiers wore were not simple lace-ups. They were like hobnail boots because when they planted that foot in the ground to fight, that foot was not moving. It didn't slip. But the shoes of peace take you everywhere. But let me just stop for a second. I'm going to ask you a question. You ever thought about this? In the armor, meaning war and battle, it's the shoes of what? The opposite. Peace. Doesn't that strike you as odd? It struck me as almost confusing, and yet I started to think about it. <laughs> we like to be part of a group of PLUs, people like us. That's a human thing. It's a fallen thing. But if you're a Christian and I'm a Christian, there is a bond between us that is greater than social class, language, culture, race, or age, for we are one in Christ. One in Christ. What a concept. This is a little side note. It's a bit of a sad side note. But many years ago, I 
like to use my sign-off on letters. Instead of saying sincerely, I would write, one in Christ, Steve. Ended up in a, let's just call it a exchange of disagreement with an author over the cover of their book. I had one opinion, they had another opinion. And I had to make the, dis in the determination that we were going to go with our company's choice. And I said, one in Christ, Steve. The author wrote back and said, I wish that were true. Division is satanic. His whole goal is to divide us. I own a copy of the second edition of the Handbook of Denominations. It's this thick. The newest edition of the Handbook of Denominations is this thick. We Christians are not the best models <laughs> for unity. But here's my admonition to you. I wrote this down and I said, our unity in Christ might be the greatest evangelistic tool in our battle against darkness. They will know we are Christians by our love. And how the people say, man, that was a horrible situation. How can you be so calm? Christ is in me. I hope and I pray that he will be in you. How come you people seem to enjoy each other all the time and you're so different? <laughs> well, we're writers, you know. I mean, that is the verse about peculiar people, you know. <laughs> Let's look at the shield of faith for a second. The text reads, in every situation, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. <laughs> the Roman army was virtually undefeated if they could get in close battle with you because of their discipline and the way they used their shields. Those shields were four foot tall, two foot wide. Now, I am much larger than the, the average Roman soldier back in that day. So imagine me... So I can fit behind it. And then, when you slam that thing into the ground, it's stable here. You plant that shoe in the back and hold. There's no way to beat that. Not back then. And if you start throwing the flaming arrows, the guys in the back just simply put their shields over the top. And you have a little house, and there's no way to penetrate it. So how did these arrows, these flaming arrows work? They would set them on fire and hope they would stick into the wooden shield and catch the shield on fire. 
So they then began to use certain pieces of leather that they made very supple that would not catch almost flame proof. And these arrows, they're not the little ones with the you know, little suction cup on the end. <laughs> these were javelins. The word here in the Greek is not your typical word for arrow. These are weighted arrows that were meant to stand up because if they got close, well, I mean, we're done. And so they would heave these flaming javelins and bam, bam, bam. Nothing could penetrate. <laughs> Psalm 710. My shield is God most high. Psalm 3, you are a shield around me, O Lord. You bestow glory on me and lift my head. Psalm 28, 7, the Lord is my strength and my shield. Psalm 91, 4, his faithfulness will be our shield. Psalm 115, 11, you who fear him, trust in the Lord. His is their help and shield. One in Christ means we interlock our shields. If you're by yourself and the hordes are coming after you, you might last a little while. But if you have others with you, the body of Christ, the armor, the army of Christ, Nothing can stand against us. Then we have the helmet of salvation. Woe to the soldier who goes into battle without a helmet. I once met a chiropractor who had been a uh, NFL offensive guard. Now, when you go into the appointment and he tells you that, you're thinking, am I going to live through this experience? <laughs> but he was my size. And I said, you're not big enough. And he goes, back in my day, you had, all you had to do was be faster than the running back. He said, they're 150 pounds heavier today than they were back then. He was, the, he was the main blocking back for Earl Campbell, for those of you who know that name in the past. And all he had to do was outrun Earl. And Earl was fast. So I thought about this idea of the helmet, and I asked him, I said, so did you ever get like the concussions and all that? He said, yeah, about 15 or 16 of them. He said, we didn't have very good helmets. So... Let's take the armor of God, the helmet of salvation, or I called it renewal. That helmet protects what? The mind, the brain, the head, the epicenter of our thinking that basically controls everything else. I already quoted you Romans chapter 12 verse 2 about renewing the mind. But don't forget this verse, 1 Corinthians 2.16. We have the mind of Christ. 
And in earlier in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul writes, Be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness in righteousness and truth. He was actually giving us a precursor in chapter 4 of what the whole armor of God was going to be in that verse. So how do you renew that mind? How do you keep it fresh? It's, I think it's by reading. Obviously reading the word. And I'm not going to discount this. I mean, we're in this room as writers, so we'd like to hope that people would read our writing. Wouldn't that be nice? Um, But what kind of books are we reading? Are we booking, are we sharp, that stir and sharpen the mind? I put it this way. I said, so what, what have you binged lately? Shows that edify? Or shows that portray sin as normal and okay? Have you binged on a Puritan lately? Probably not. You know, it doesn't cost a whole lot to buy a Puritan. They're all free. You can get them on your Kindle in about 10 seconds if you wanted to. One of my favorite is Thomas Watson. I find of all the Puritans, he writes almost like a modern-day writer. Accessible, uh, not a lot of big words, very simple. And his book, The Body of Divinity, is an exercise or an explanation of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And I would like to challenge you, you might be too tired to even consider it now, but put it in your notes to download The Body of Divinity onto your app, onto your phone or whatever, and just read the first section under what is the chief end of man, to glorify God and enjoy him forever, And in the six pages he talks about the glory of God, you will never be the same again. I can almost guarantee it. I keep going back to that. It's a beautiful thing. Or looking at Jeremiah Burroughs' book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. Oh, do Christian writers need to learn how to be content. But it's a classic. Binge on it. You can't go wrong. The helmet of salvation, renewing the mind. Last, the sword of the spirit. Now, I started my whole thing with people of words need to be the people of the word. But I find it interesting that it's the last thing in the whole armor of God, but it's the only one you don't wear. You have to pick it up. You have to practice with it, to wield it. There are some that say that the pen is mightier than the sword. And I dare say to writers, that's probably not true. But this pen can change the world in your hands. Will you take up the challenge? 
And you might say, oh, I'm nobody. I, I, I have no platform. Steve Lobby said no. <laughs> and I say, seriously, you're going to take me as the authority? There's a higher authority than me. You're here because you were called to be here. The naysayers that are clipping your wings, all they're doing is redirecting your efforts. It could be your ministry might be a letter that you have finally crafted to your wayward daughter that she reads and never tells you she read but never forgets it and four years later mentions it to you. What if? Does it mean a byline? Is that the measure of success in God's almighty kingdom? He really doesn't care about your byline. He cares, cares about his byline. He has written himself on your heart. You see, I started with the idea of being people of the word for a reason because biblical literacy it is, a, is at an all-time high. Sunday schools are things of the past. Children are not being taught the basic messages. Sermons often are feel-good messages and not biblical uh, comprehensive exposition of the text. But you know what? You guys have no excuse. You can pull out your phone and pull up any Bible translation in virtually any language and have it at your fingertips. I actually did a little thing. The Bible has 750,000 words in it. <laughs> I've received proposals that are longer than that. <laughs> you think I'm kidding. I actually wrote a guy and I said, wow, your book is actually longer than the Bible. Uh, the average person reads about 200 words a minute. That means in 12 minutes a day, you can read the entire Bible from cover to cover. And yet a recent survey found that 70% of people spend 30 minutes a day reading their email and 30 minutes or more a day watching television. <laughs> I want to say is, don't be caught without your sword. During the Civil War, most soldiers were issued single-shot muzzle-loading rifles. You've all seen them in museums or pictures, that long carbine with a single-shot pellet where they had to pound the gunpowder into the muzzle and then one shot. So when the enemy's charging, you're going, <laughs> you know, and then you have your one shot and, oh my gosh, I have a minute and a half before I can get my next one going. That's just the way warfare was back then. After the Battle of Gettysburg, they found 27,574 guns on the ground. Abandoned. Their owners had fled. Many of them, approximately 24,000, were still loaded. Your weapon is loaded. Do you know how to use it? 
Have you practiced it? Have you worked with it? Has it become incarnate in you? You know, this whole thing about the spiritual war and all this, it just seems like an impossible task. Well, I want to leave you with this. <laughs> Remember, the battle is already won. In the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have victory over sin and death. In Christ, we have the truth. In Christ, we have been made righteous. In Christ, we have a peace that passes all understanding. In Christ, we have his faithfulness unwavering and unconditioned. In Christ we have salvation and the renewal of all things. In Christ, the living word, we have his spirit in our hands. Do you believe this? Amen and amen. Thank you for the time.